You're listening to Racism is Profitable, a podcast by and for people of color that aims to dismantle the assumptions that fuel the oppression economy. Your hosts are Jeremy Greer and Solana Rice, the co-founders and co-executive directors of Liberation and Generation Action. Let's get it. Hello. This week, we are taking a look back at our previous episodes to explore themes of just how racism is profitable with our friend, Robert Reich. You may know him as the former U.S. Labor Secretary for the Clinton administration. You may know him as the co-founder of Inequality Media. We know him as a truth teller. Enjoy this conversation. Hi, y'all. Welcome to Racism is Profitable. What's up, y'all? Yeah, it's a podcast with me, Solana Rice, co-founder, co-executive director of Liberation in a Generation Action and... Jeremy Greer, co-founder, co-executive director of Liberation in a Generation Action. Yeah, this is a little bit of a different episode. We're very excited to look back at our past six previous episodes and just pull out some key themes and talk to our dope guest today. Uh, but before we do that, we're we're looking back. Uh, we've had some really great conversations, Jeremy. Like yeah. literally every time I get off of the mic, I'm like, that was life. That was that yeah. was life giving. Yeah. We have talked about belonging. We have talked about deservedness abundance co-governance what does trust look like in our economy like what if we had a credit system that was actually based on like real trust and trust of black people trust of other people of color um and i have to say i feel like we've done a good like scratching of the surface of how to undo some of these deeply deeply embedded uh, notions about how what what it takes to run our economy right. and it's like the right. what if we had these tenants as our core pillars of what it means to run an economy that everybody belongs yeah. that everybody deserves basic their basic needs met that we actually live in abundance which we absolutely right. do that there's room for co-governance um and shared power and that we we trust we like trust black latinx Right. indigenous uh other people of color like what yeah, yeah. i i just and think, then, so today yeah. what we're gonna do is we're gonna pull back a little bit and we're gonna just talk about this idea of like racism being profitable and like what does it mean that racism is profitable we're gonna talk to robert rice former labor secretary professor at, Univer at university of california uh, founder of inequality media and, and, and we're gonna talk to him about this idea of racism being profitable and what what creates that and you know as i was thinking about the show and going into like who you know we talked to you know there was this moment in the conversation with Demond drummer where he said you know the united states has always been able to afford what it chooses to do and mm -hmm. you know that kind of that gave me life because it's like this is all the naysayers all that you can't do this it doesn't cost too much to do this all that that we've been hearing we we know that that's not true and that we can lean into something that um that that, that is real i was still on i wonder if there was a moment that like stood out for you in the conversations that we've had up to now i always love talking to Grace and yeah oh yeah the idea that citizenship like I've known this internally, but 
for saying it was so helpful that citizenship is more than a social security number and that we can think Mm -hmm. through and identify the ways that we can uh, support all the people living in this nation, um, whether they have a social security number or not, like we can actually redefine citizenship. And I, I, I think that's at the core of, uh, so much of this deservedness narrative that just because you came here one way or the other doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like we got you. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, yeah. That would be right. That would be an we amazing. That would be an amazing thing. We got you, right? And you know, I was and while we were having these conversations, it was always in. The, it's in the backdrop of this first year of President Biden's administration, mm. and yeah. I was just struck over and over again how these concepts that we were talking about, whether it's deservedness, whether it's citizenship and belonging, whether it's um, work and like how hard people work and, and stuff like that, and this idea around like that we can or cannot afford things, how much all of that has been at the center of this first administration. And then really, I think, unfortunately, has led to the president not delivering on a lot of the things that he's promised. He talked about canceling everybody's student loan debt, but right away it turned into this whole conversation about could we afford it, right? And then we're going to give everyone a child tax credit. You know, we're going to extend a child tax credit. And then it became this conversation about, like, who deserves it and who doesn't. And then, you know, they promised, which was, to me, seemed like after everything to that black folks went through after the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor, um, and then the murder of, of so many other black men and women after, even just after George mm-hmm. Floyd, we couldn't pass the basicest, most basic of yeah. police reform legislation, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And then the response being to use black activists as like Ugh. this this like excuse for why they couldn't do it. You know, it's just, it's really like been unnerving to see how these themes have come up even after such a transformative um, political moment like we saw last, last, you know, in 2020. And I do recall correctly, I think that in the debates, in the presidential debates, there was this big question about like, well, how will you negotiate with, with Republicans. And right? everybody was clapping when Joe Biden said, I yeah. know how to wa- work across the aisle, which, you know, we all were going to take with a grain of salt. But now we're seeing, like, are, are you a great negotiator? I Should we be know. negotiating? Um, what about the folks that are in theory on our side, quote unquote, on our side, right. the Democrats that are, right. are also not falling in line with a really right. honestly progressive vision. So I, I, I think we're at a space where, you know, we're two years in and we've really got to ask ourselves what's on the horizon for not only the midterms, but also 2024, like, who should we be standing up? Who should we be? Well, yeah. And what are the terms under which we right. really can support somebody? We gotta, we have to turn out, folks, and people have to be excited right. about the possibilities. Right. It's 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 too early probably to ask the question. You know, Joe Biden in his victory speech said, you know, to black folks, you have my back, I have yours. It's probably too early to make a judgment about whether he has our back or not. But we have some data. And there's mm-hmm. going to be an important time where we are going to have to ask that question. And, mm-hmm. you know, based upon what 
this administration and the people that you know behind him that got him into office are going to do is going to going to answer that question for, for us. But today we're going to have a real great conversation with someone who has been behind the scenes yes. and knows how this stuff works um, in Robert Reich. So, uh, you know, I look forward to that conversation. So uh, let's not pontificate no. anymore. Let's move no. over to, to Bob. Stay tuned, y'all. But we'll just jump right in. Bob, sure. how are you doing? How are you doing today? It's a tumultuous time. I, I will say I am tired, um, not only because I have a little one, but because, <laughs> because there's a lot going on in the world. Are you tired? What's what's happening in your world? How are you feeling? Well, I'm exhausted and I'm also pissed off uh, because I was assuming that once the crisis of, uh, you know, the COVID and, and Trump and all of the other crises that we've been involved in were over, that uh, I could relax a little bit. And I suppose I should be relaxing, mm. but... We're on the precipice of the of a possible nuclear war, and and mm. I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember the 1950s. Uh, you know, I remember what it felt like to do the duck and cover. So one thing we wanted to talk to you a bit about today is, you know, we have this podcast about racism is profitable. It's really kind of get underneath the like underbelly of how this economy works. And I remember when we we were sitting in a coffee shop. I don't know if you remember this, Bob. We were sitting in a coffee shop and we were talking about like liberation generation and what we what we hope to do. And you said to us, you said, do you know about this guy, Mariner Eccles? And we were like, no, tell us about Mariner Eccles. And then you, you know, you told us about Mariner Eccles. So I wonder if you could go into a little bit about why Mariner Eccles is so important how this connects to the the theme that we're covering today talking about racism is profitable and like why like black and brown people should care about this person uh, and what he did well you know it's interesting jeremy when we met in the coffee uh the coffee place <laughs> and i talked about mariner eccles you guys didn't know who he was and no, we didn't. Uh, in, well, you know, if I keep on talking about Mariner Eccles for the next three years, eventually people will know who he is. And people still don't know who Mariner Eccles is, and, he, and they will never know how, who he is. But uh, look, um, he's a very important character, uh, because even though he was a, what was in those days, a multimillionaire, uh, he was one of the few people who understood that the key to everybody doing better in the economy was for everybody to do better in the economy. In other better. words, that the, the the economy was not top down. It was not uh, kind of a, we don't even use the term supply side trickle down in those days, but that's what a lot mm -hmm. of people did believe. Uh, it really did depend on everybody doing better and doing well because their buying power would create jobs and those jobs uh, would in turn create more buying power. It was a virtuous mm -hmm. cycle. And Mariner Eccles testified before Congress, before the New Deal, uh, and put out uh, a bunch of recommendations that were actually the essence of the New Deal. In fact, they were better than the New Deal because as we all know, black people were, were um, largely excluded from the New Deal. Right or political reasons, were the worst kind of political reasons, because FDR mm -hmm. wanted to get Southern Democrats. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, Mariner Eccles really did understand that we were all in this together. He became the mm. first chairman 
of the Fed uh, under Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was there for a long time, I think something like uh, 18 years. Uh, the building, the Fed building is named after him. Still, nobody knows who he is. <laughs> and, uh, and, and his legacy continues in the form of a lot of us, uh, including you two, who are talking about the yeah. critical importance of investing in everybody. Yeah, it, you know, so we had Damon Drummer from PolicyLink on in an earlier episode. So we talked a bit about the Federal Reserve and how it works. And um, one of the things he said is that um, there is nothing this country can't afford when we choose to to do it, right? And so one of the things that I've been thinking about throughout this um you know, all these debates around the size of the Build Back Better plan and the, the size of the infrastructure practice, all the kind of spending programs that um, that uh, President Biden and the, some people in Congress want to do, is that like these conversations about what, can we afford it just seem really like ridiculous to me. And it seems like when, you know, and that this idea that we can we can cover the cost of everything that we need to do is rooted in like, someone like Marion Eccles and like the, the his philosophy of bringing to I just wonder if you could talk a bit about like how these conversations today are connecting to this kind of discussion about the role of government and, and what it is that it, that it can do for people. Well, uh, first of all, Jeremy, there is a, a view, uh, and I think there has a, a lot of legitimacy attached to the view, uh, that because we print our own money, essentially, we're the yeah. only country that is big enough and powerful enough to be able to do that, that we shouldn't even worry about how to pay for anything. That yeah. we can afford, by the very nature of the fact that the dollar is the reserve currency for the world, we can afford to do anything we want. Uh, let's get out of this bind, that, this self-imposed, uh, largely conservative Republican bind that says we've got to pay for everything. Uh, but even if you accept that proposition, we are paying, look at it, we have a defense budget per year of $760 billion. Uh, I mean, you trim that a little bit and you get enough money to pay for, for example, the refundable expanded child tax credit. Uh, right. We have a billionaire class, 760 people, who over the last two years during the pandemic increased their wealth by $1.2 trillion, trillion, not billion, trillion, trillion dollars. Trillion. And they, in other words, if you, if you tad, had a wealth tax uh, that sopped up a lot of that wealth, they would still be doing better than they did two years ago. Right. Uh, in other words, there is absolutely no limit to what we can and should be able to do for our people uh, in order to invest in them and the, the, and public investments by the way pay for themselves i mean if if we put money mm. into preschool if we put money into early childhood education if we put money into child care put money into anything that has to do with young people and giving them better opportunities giving them better education giving them a better start well, that means they're going to be more productive. That means they're going to be less costly in terms of every measure of cost in our society. That means these investments pay off big. We shouldn't even be worrying about anything we're talking about in terms of mm -hmm. cost. Mm. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, you bringing that up, though, reminds me of this 
State of the Union address that we just heard uh, and this idea that we need to fund police and not all of the things that you just mentioned, which we just heard, like these things pay off. And I'm I, to me, I'm like, who was in the room when folks were writing that State of the Union? Because that was like that. To me, that was unnecessary, but I'm curious from your experience, you've been in these rooms where big decisions are happening and are being made. Uh, Seems like when it comes out on the other end uh, for us, it's like, it's kind of coded about racism. It's kind of coded about who gets to have what, who doesn't get to have what. Have you been in rooms where you're just like, wait, why, why are we really just still dependent on this deservedness deservedness narrative on this scarcity narrative are the conversations in those rooms just like blatant or, or are you decoding as well uh, yes and uh, that's the short answer the longer answer is that it doesn't matter what I thought or think. Uh, I mean, the people who have the most influence over the State of the Union addresses or really over much of what Joe Biden uh, or uh, Kamala Harris or anybody in the administration does day by day are political advisors. And they have their eyes, especially once you're in the gravitational pull of the midterm elections or thereafter uh, the general election of 2024, they have their eyes on the election. They have their eyes on uh, on public approval, the likelihood of getting people out uh, or not getting people out. Why did that particular phrase get into the State of the Union about uh, however he said it? You know, he, he rejected defund the police. Uh, fund the police, he said. How did it get there? I'm sure, although I wasn't there, I'm reasonably sure on the basis of my experience that it was political advisors saying, uh, Mr. President, uh, defund the police has been utilized by Republicans or by conservatives mm -hmm. to scare um, middle class and working class whites. And mm. in particularly in states that we need. Uh, and, and mm. you know, these are swing states and these are suburbs. Uh, and we've got to take away their ammunition. That's what the mm. argument was about. Now, was there some other political advisor there saying, Mr. President, we need young people and people of color in the next election to be motivated to get out there. And if you say something like that, their motivation is going to drop. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe there was there was a three minute discussion between those two sets of political advisors as to what's going to net the bigger out the, the bigger positive. Uh, but that's unfortunately, sadly, what it comes to. And, and Bob, I wonder how this stuff gets codified in policy. And like, you know, so, you know, we in our earlier podcast, we talked about the welfare cream narrative and how like that became pervasive and like shifting certain people's perspective on social programs like welfare and, and food stamps and things like that. So how does like narrative conversations like that, that are like racist and maybe placating and pandering to some interest group? How do they make themselves in a policy that like actually really affects people on like a day to day basis? Generally speaking, Jeremy, you've got um, people in, let's say, Biden's White House who want to do the right thing defined as uh, what the country ought to be doing in terms of moving toward a more just, fair society. 
uh, including obviously people of color. Now, they have to run a gauntlet. They've got to make sure the political advisors are with them because, uh, well, as I used, to, I used to have this debate with a fellow named Dick Morris uh, in the Clinton White House. Dick Morris was the pollster. He was a political advisor. Uh, he was the number one the political pollster. advisor. Uh, and I would say... Dick, so wait, wait. Uh, a pollster was telling you, an uh, economist, about some policy making thing. Oh, right? like yes. Like he's he having was, that he type of... Okay. I had, to, I had yeah. to sell him. I had to sell him. Uh. And I would say, Dick, how about this? How about the president doing this or that? And he'd say, well, if the president says this or, or wants to do that, he's not going to be reelected. Uh, and if he's not reelected, you have a zero chance of ever doing this or that. And that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of chicken and egg show mm -hmm. we got into over and over again. Uh, I, I, I think there are a lot of people and let's not get too cynical. A lot of people around Biden who want to do the right thing. Uh, mm. And uh, it, they're good people. It's a good staff. Uh, in fact, uh, if I look back over the last three Democratic administrations, I would say uh, this White House staff is the best. Uh, it has fewest Wall Street shills uh, mm. than, than certainly the mm. uh, Obama or the yeah. Clinton White House. Uh, but uh, even but, but but they are constantly locking horns with the political people about what is going to get uh, in the midterm elections. Democrats, what 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 gives the Democrats best the best chance of keeping the House and or the Senate, and what gives Biden and Kamala Harris the best chance, depending upon who's going to be running in twenty twenty four, of keeping the White House. So from your perspective, then, I mean, what you're telling me is like the policy folks and the political folks are constantly doing this dance about what can be moved forward, but still reassure reelection. Um, so what kind of political power do we need to be building in this moment in order to make sure that like, the people, the pollsters are really taking into account like the future of the progressive movement, the future of the nation, which is mostly people of color. Like from your from your vantage point, where do we go? How do we energize the young people and people of color? Like, I, I know that's well, funny I'm, coming from a young person of color, but I'm curious about your. So, <laughs> your so, no, I mean, I would say, honestly, you and Jeremy and others who are young and people of color and politically motivated are the key to the future. That mm. is not just the Democratic Party, but all of American politics. Mm. Uh, and to the extent that you organize, energize and mobilize, then that is going to find its way into the brains of the political people who are advising any president or any major politician. Uh, that's it's as simple and as direct as that. Now, the difference, though, may be in terms of uh, time horizon. Uh, the people mm. who are political advisors in the White House, they're just looking at the next election election cycle. They're not really looking, uh, you know, uh, two administrations from now. They don't really care. Mm -hmm. uh, but I but I think that to the extent that there is an understanding of 
how much power uh, young people, people of color, progressives actually bring to the table and getting out the vote. And getting out the vote is a big, big piece of this. Uh, then the political people in the White House and the political people in the Senate and, and in the House will act accordingly. Mm-hmm. So how, do, how does this play out? Because, you know, you've been advocating for years around like things like paid paid leave things like you know a um a livable uh minimum wage you know like like these policies that are very popular when you poll people um and would help a lot of black and brown folks uh if if passed but seem to keep hitting these walls and is is the vote the way to that or is there other stuff that people should be doing and thinking about as they try to push these policies that are popular when you ask people about them but just can't seem to get through the kind of minutia of the policymaking. Some of the policies, like a minimum wage increase, are extremely popular. And uh, that's why in election years, uh, minimum wage increases occur. In non-election years, they don't occur. So uh, you, you need to know, you, you just need to know yeah. <laughs> there's a kind of ebb and wane uh, yeah. to what can be done when there are openings. Uh, even Republicans vote. I, you know, in, in 1996, uh, I went to uh, Bill Clinton and said, uh, can we just please raise the minimum wage? Uh, and he said, <laughs> well, I as he said, he said, you got to ask, uh, ask Dick, Dick Morris, the pollster. And, the you know, that's another example. <laughs> so I went to Dick Morris and said, uh, well, I, you know, the president said to come to you and, uh, you know, I think it's time to raise the minimum wage. So Dick Morris said, well, let me do a poll. And, uh, he'll, he, and then he, the next day, the very next day, I got a call from him, Dick Morris, saying, you'll never guess what, 80% of Americans are in favor of raising the minimum wage. You'll never I guess. Said, I said, Dick, how did you get that poll result so fast? Did you poll members of your family? Was that how you did it? What is this? Um, so, uh, but I, I then had Dick Morris's poll results, and I went back to the president, and I went to uh, House and Senate leaders. Now, they were at that time, it was all Republican. Uh, mm. because the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Newt Gingrich's mm-hmm. so-called revolution yep. had occurred. Uh, but uh, it didn't really matter because House and Senate, they, they looked at those polls. Uh, they, uh, they had conversations with the National Restaurant Association, the small business, all the people who normally hate minimum wage increases and said, look, we, it's, it's time. We don't want to be penalized at the ballot box. And we did. We got it. We got it. We got mm. a minimum wage increase. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the one of the last ones <laughs> through Congress, but that's with a Republican House and a Republican Senate. Yeah. Um, and uh, and something in the order of fifty, no, thirty million Americans got a wage increase okay. that day on the vote. Uh, is that possible again? Absolutely, absolutely. If you could do it with a Republican House and Republican Senate, uh, we can do it now. On other, th- on other issues, though, it's more complicated. Medicare for all, it's easy the demagogue. Minimum wage, mm-hmm. everybody understands it. Med- Medicare yeah. for all, uh, the forces against it can say, oh, you're going to lose your doctor, you're going to lose this, you're going to yeah. lose that, you're going to lose your employer-provided health care. It's hard to come, bo- come back uh, and give people, uh, as well, as, as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both saw, uh, if if you have to come back and explain a negative, 
uh, then you're halfway, you know, halfway gone to begin with. Uh, what are some other examples of policies? Uh, I, I think what I'm saying is it depends on the year, uh, where there are opportunities, when is it an election year, and yeah. also is it complicated? Is it easy for people to understand or is it easy to demagogue? Yeah, well, what I hear you saying is like the best argument doesn't win always. Like if you can show, you know, like research that says it'll take this number of people out of poverty or it will do this or that, like that doesn't always win because his political implications come into play around is it the right year? Is it going to bring the right voters out? Things like that. All that stuff is needs to be a part of the package that you're presenting. Oh, it's a big part of it. I mean, we're living in a democracy. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm glad. Uh, but it means the policy is always takes <laughs> mm -hmm. a backseat to yep. politics. Always, 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 always. always. Uh, I mean, I've been yep. trying to uh, tell people on the Hill uh, that we had a perfect experiment on the expanded uh, child tax credit. Child tax credit. Uh, we had a perfect yeah. experiment. Yeah. I mean, we, we know what happened to child poverty before. Uh, we know what happened to child poverty when we had it in that six-month mm -hmm. window. And we know what's happened to child poverty since. I mean, since. You, I mean, there's it's it's absolutely clear that uh, you reduce child poverty by thirty to forty percent with a, uh, a a refundable child tax credit that's expanded in exactly the way uh, that we did. Uh, but how far does that policy argument go? Well, it doesn't go very far. Well, we I see, wish I could say because we did we're likely not going to win it, right? Like, it's all up to Joe Manchin and his what he wants to do, right? Like, it's... Uh, that's right. Now, uh, talking, I don't want to get in the weeds, but Mitt Romney came up with a fairly decent plan in the early stages mm -hmm. of thinking about the expanded uh, child tax credit. Uh, and I remember thinking in a purely policy perspective, Chief Mitt Romney's plan is in some ways superior uh, to hmm. the plan that everybody else came up with. So in political terms, why not just try to get Mitt Romney? I mean, you don't need, we have 50 Democrats and minus Joe Manchin, 49. Right. And we've got, you know, we've got the vote. Kamala Harris can do the swing vote. So why don't we just get <laughs> Mitt Romney? Hello? Uh, Mitt, uh, Mitt but, Romney's got to ACA the uh, child tax credit like, like he did well, in Massachusetts. <laughs> You see, it, it again, it, it very often comes down to personalities as well. Yeah. Uh, much yeah. as those of us who are steeped in policy analysis and economics would rather not admit it, uh, that's it, it really is people. Um, Joe Manchin, for some reason, got very, very angry with the Biden White House. Uh, he felt that he was taking a lot of the heat for how yeah. slow Build Back Better was going through, was moving through. Uh, he mm -hmm. felt that he was taking all of the heat on voting rights, and um, he's you know he just he just uh, lost it. He doesn't want to he doesn't want to cooperate. Here's a contradiction I feel though, Bob. Like, and I I don't know what to do with it. We are saying that people turning out to vote is really important, and we've just laid out like several examples of where personalities come into play politics come into play how do how do folks reconcile like yes i should vote and i understand that there's so much more to politics 
than yeah. voting, right? You've got these special interests. You've got you've got folks like the chamber and all these special interest groups that are just like, nah, we're going to shut that down, right? So I'm curious about like, yes, we should vote. And like, how do we build power in those spaces, in those like sacred spaces that like people of color are often not allowed to enter? <laughs> well, I think, I think Solana, the, the way to do it or the way to argue about doing it is number one, demographics. Demographics mm. are on mm. our side uh, in terms mm -hmm. of people of color and young people. Uh, and mm. the whole Republican paranoid reaction and the kind of, uh, you know, proto-Trump stuff that's going on right now around the country is all a fear about more and more people voting. Uh, but that's, mm. you know, demographics, you can't, you can't just, demographics are destiny. That's going to happen. Uh, so that's, that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, I think a lot of people should take some encouragement from the 2020 election. A lot of good things happened. I mean, we never expected Georgia, for example, uh, to come up mm -hmm. with two, mm -hmm. uh, you know, two Democratic mm -hmm. senators, uh, and uh, and and the number of people of color actually moving into politics and young people. I I think that there has been. Uh, a, a, a huge, slow-moving revolution in the making. Uh, and uh, that's it's going to happen in fits and starts. It's, you know, it's not going to be a huge success. I think that this fall is going to be a big test for all of us. Uh, but, uh, and I don't want to sound as if I'm uh, a Pollyanna or I'm simply, you know, <laughs> repeating Martin Luther King Jr.'s The Arc of, of, of Justice. I, no, I, I think it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard work. Mm -hmm. We have to understand that. But we also have got to be patient. Patience is critical here. Uh, nothing is going to change right away. But I'm, I'm, I would be very surprised if uh, we were having this discussion in eight years or four years uh, and things had not improved dramatically. Mm-hmm. What I also hear you saying, though, is that we don't have to wait necessarily, but it, that it's going to take a while. Because I think there's a difference. Sometimes people are like, just wait your turn or just like, right. uh, we'll make these incremental things. I don't think that's what you're saying. I think you're saying, though, that the tide, in, the taking power and, and being in positions of power is going to, that, that literally just takes time, that we should be doing that work. Um, but we don't exactly. have to like yeah, wait right. forever. Don't, don't, wait, don't wait in terms of being politically <laughs> active or energized or organizing. Do it now and do it with uh, extraordinary effort and do it with as many people as you possibly can now. Don't wait. But in terms of your expectations, your mm. understanding of the speed mm -hmm. of change when you're dealing with power and the change that you want in terms of the structure of power, you need to understand that it's not going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit around like 
kind of back in your career and kind of bring it into where, where you are now, like where, you know, we had come to you and w- with the idea of doing a video called racism is profitable. And we focused on the prison industrial complex and, you know, you were like right away, like, Oh, I see this so many places in the economy. I just wonder like over the years, how reflecting back, like how have you seen that show up over time? And then where do you see it? Like, showing up over and over again kind of in the work that you're on the things that you're focusing on today well you can see it even today the military contractors are celebrating what's going on Mm. in the world Mm. in terms of Mm. putin's invasion of ukraine Uh, military contractor and defense industry stocks are going through the roof Mm -hmm. i mean Mm-hmm. Uh, they have, and I won't. And I don't want to accuse them of being in any way, right. uh, you know, un-American. Uh, they would say they're proto. You know, they're extraordinary American. They are. They are the ones who are leading the charge. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that, as the situation deteriorates in the world, there are people uh, whose job it is to maximize the shareholding mm-hmm. value uh, mm-hmm. of. Uh, of 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 institutions that are in the business of killing people uh, or mm-hmm. the prison industrial complex of confiding people uh, mm-hmm. or uh, creating a world that is a pretty bleak awful world uh, mm-hmm. and we've got to understand that they are in the game as well uh, they are a political influence yeah. um, now in the best of all worlds these people particularly government contractors whether we're talking about the military industrial complex or the prison industrial complex, uh, these government contracts should not be able to lobby or make campaign contributions because they're on the, you know, they're getting money Mm. from the government. Right. But, and maybe we can get to a point where we have Mm. campaign finance reform that makes that impossible. Uh, But for now, they really are players and we've got to understand that and we've got to name them and we've got to make people very aware of what they are doing yeah and how do we bounce that with the role like so you know we opened and talking about mariner eccles who was someone that saw the role of government and actually making a better world right like if people were out of work the government should be involved in making sure those people if they don't find them a job are covering their you know their their basic needs so they can live live a life so what how do we balance the role that government plays with doing that because i think that the pathway out of you know things like poverty and and you know um mass incarceration and the things that we're seeing in black and brown communities is that path with kind of where we are which is this like profiting from pain like like what is the way to kind of rebalance that in a way so that we can get back to kind of you know the, the thinking of where we started this was what was around someone that saw the world um very differently than the way we're kind of living in it now i think the first step is not to celebrate or in any way talk about the goal as being government or a bigger government, mm. or a government. Mm-hmm. I mean, government, in, in our history, going back to the beginning, government was was always, it wasn't Ronald Reagan, government was always a problem. I mean, we hated the British government. We This, this country was, was, was born out of a revolution against centralized power. The government is not popular. 
we had a brief period where Mariner Eccles stepped up in 1929 uh, through, let's say, the Cold War. Uh, and that was a period where we had a depression and a hot war and a cold war, uh, and government was necessary. It was a, and people rallied behind the United States, but not behind the government. And that's the, there's a difference. We, we love our system of government, at least many people do, mm. uh, most of us do, but we don't love government per se. Um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. The goals that we are talking about, that is a goal in which uh, our children are, are taken care of, uh, that our children don't go for lack of food or lack of shelter. They have good educations. They, they can become uh, effective and productive citizens and participants in our society. Um, and I mean, that's something we can agree on. Uh, people also understand that over the kitchen table, the problems are almost exactly the same, regardless of our race. Uh, you know, people uh, can't pay the bills. Uh, they, you know, gas prices are hitting uh, $4 a gallon in California, $5 a gallon. Uh, people who have to drive to work and, and, and get caught in traffic. I mean, th this is the where people live. Start where people live. Uh, don't talk about labels. Don't talk about Republican or Democrat or Donald Trump or progressive or 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 socialist or what. Just just start where people are, uh, and it's amazing how far you can go. Yeah, we need to have a Maryland Maryland Mariner Eccles block party. I think that's 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 what we need <laughs> that's, to do. That's exactly Mariner Eccles consciousness. Come. I think yeah. you know. I I commune with them, right? He and I talk every once in a while, and he, he suggested something very much like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, this is we're gonna do a rapid set of questions. Um, this is like off the cuff. Um, if there was one agency, one federal agency you could take apart and rebuild, what agency would that be? The Defense Department. Oh yeah. Uh, I think I might have heard a campaign slogan in what you just said, but I'm curious, if you were to run for president, we're just going to say for president, what would your campaign slogan be? Uh, the people versus the powerful. Mm, and uh, the last good laugh you had. Uh, just a couple of seconds ago with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I, I think but I, actually, let me let me just pause there because that's an important point. Uh, I think yes. anybody who is involved in our civic life, our political life, or trying to move things, you can't take yourself too seriously, but you have to take the issues very seriously. Mm, you gotta laugh. I think that's like, if you don't if you don't yeah. find humor, you're really in trouble. <sighs> <laughs> well, we look forward to continuing the laughs, continuing the, the serious issues with you and with Inequality Media. And we've had a great time. Thanks, Bob. Well, you Is there anything that you, what should people know about Inequality Media? What should people know? Uh, this is a nonprofit uh, we started in in order to educate the public, because it's all about, fundamentally, it's all about public education. If, I, if people know what is at stake, uh, they can be good citizens. If they just listen to propaganda or Fox News or sort of uh, uh, fake news, uh, they can't be good citizens. So, pub, uh, so inequality media is all about uh, finding ways to get the truth and truthful narratives uh, to people. 
but let me just uh, use my last seconds to thank you guys, uh, both of you, Solana and Jeremy. You're doing wonderful, wonderful work. And I want to, you know, there. it, it seems like uh, 20 years have passed since we met in the coffee bar <laughs> to talk about your ideas. Um, and I want to thank you for what you've done. Yeah. All right. Well, we thank you too, Bob. It's, it's been a great ride and we'll continue to ride with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Take Bye. it easy. We'll see you soon. Okay. Right. See you soon. Bye. 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 All right. That's a wrap. Wow. That Bob. was, that was, uh, the Bob Reich. <laughs> Former, the Bob Reich. Yeah, the Bob Reich. Um, a lot of people wonder how to say his last name, Reich. <laughs> yep. uh, of Inequality Media, former Labor Secretary uh, in the Clinton administration. I learned a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot about this this pollster, and like, what your pollster, your your issues have to poll well. That's even if we know, we even if we know, like, it, like substantially, like It'll we work. know what to do, which yeah. actually explains yeah. a lot. It's not, it's well, not it's like funny we don't know what to do. Or it's also funny that you're polling people about something that you intend to do, but probably haven't done yet. And you're expecting <laughs> people to know something about it. But anyway, my big problem with pollsters. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really great. And um, he's, uh, but we joked a lot about Mariner Eccles, but what it really was bringing forward mm. is that there was a time when the Federal Reserve, like we talked about in another, mm. uh, in the pod with Damon Drummer, saw its mission as providing, and they, they completely restructured the Fed. So if, I, I, I encourage people to look, we joked about it, look up Mariner Eccles and uh, the Federal Reserve and the, the Banking Act that passed at that time, where they really reconstructed the Federal Reserve so that it could respond to the effects of the depression and yeah. what was happening in the country at that time and saw the government take on a role of caring for its people, which I, I believe was not too dissimilar to the impact of something like COVID-19 or just the impact of, you know, centuries of systemic racism that has been put down upon um, black and brown folks in this country and that the Federal Reserve could be used in a way to undo uh, many of those harms. So I, I, I encourage people to look and, and research a little bit about uh, Mariner Eccles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad Bob got to talk about Mariner Eccles because I feel like yeah. I haven't had a conversation with him where he hasn't brought up that was that was great and i was really struck for me i was struck by this idea that our expectations should reflect what's not not necessarily what's possible but our expectations also have to be in the long view which is partly why we do the work we do at liberation and generation action because we also want to have something to say about the long view like we don't have to mm -hmm. wait for it to happen mm -hmm. to us um but we know that just focusing on this next election or even the election after that is not the way forward and it's not getting at those uh real embedded structural issues uh that we've we've got to imagine entirely different systems, like like you said, um, that Mariner Eccles started, right? But like in our image, um, we have to think right. about what that looks like and we have to start polling people 
that are not talking about this next election, but like, what is the possibility of a of of guarantees of guaranteed income, guaranteed to a job? What is the yeah. the future of a liberation economy? Uh, can we imagine a place where we're not just dependent on this deservative narrative and like what what all the what systems would totally change if we did that? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a good segue into um, what Kendra is going to kill us if we don't do, which is to talk about how this, this podcast is going to contribute to that that future economy. And, you know, we're going to take a little hiatus. Uh, we've done seven episodes. Hope that you all have enjoyed them. Uh, we're going to take a little hiatus, probably a, a month or two uh, after the release of this one. And we're going to regroup. And we're going to come back with a podcast that we hope is beginning to force those conversations that um, many of the guests that we've had up to this point have come on. We want to have more organizers on the show. We want to have we're going to be in election year. We want to have some uh, some political candidates on the pod. So, like, we got a lot of ideas, a lot of things that we're, we want to do. But it's, we're going to have to take a couple months to, to sort through it and get ready to go. So. Keep an eye on your um, wherever you get your podcast and uh, be on the lookout for um, an alert from uh, Racism is Profitable. Take it easy, y'all. Peace. Thanks for listening. For more information, check out our list of episode resources and visit us at liberationandagenerationaction.org. Shout out to our producer, Jacob Bronstein, audio editor, Nino Fernandez, communications director, me, Kendra Bozarth, the design team at TrimTab, and the whole squad at LibGen Action. Like what you heard? Help us make some noise by telling two friends about the Racism is Profitable podcast. Until next time, y'all, peace.